Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. It's my enormous pleasure to welcome you here for what I hope will be an enticing hour. Particularly uh, pleased to acknowledge the Department of American Studies at the University of Wales Swansea as sponsors of this event very appropriately because in a sense what we'll be talking about and that department fosters many links with American universities, America itself at a very important moment. How do I describe our guest who sits I think in the pantheon um, alongside um, Mailer and Roth and Bellow and Updike, um, thinking about the sort of parabola of his writing, I suppose if it ends in the barber shop thus far in an April day in 2000, the natural place to end in New York and America. It begins at the baseball game between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants in 1951. The ball from which you'll remember is passed down the generations in Underworld. I will have the pleasure of asking him a few questions. Uh, you can then follow up with, I'm afraid as so often happens in these occasions, even better questions towards the end, certainly shorter ones. Uh, but first of all, to read from Cosmopolis, it's my enormous pleasure to present to you Don DeLillo. I had a simple idea, a man traveling across town in Manhattan, a trip that would take him all day. The man is Eric Packer. He is young, brilliant, ruthless, um, a currency trader and asset manager, a multi-billionaire, but not a typical Wall Street whiz kid. He reads serious poetry, collects serious art, speaks several languages, owns a decommissioned nuclear bomber, and on the day in question, he is traveling in his um, very well-equipped white stretch limousine. It happens that the President of the United States is in town this day in his limousine, and this causes enormous traffic jams. The reading uh, I will do will be brief and somewhat impressionistic and not necessarily in sequence. <clears throat> Sleep failed him more often now, not once or twice a week, but four times, five. What did he do when this happened? He did not take long walks into the scrolling dawn. There was no friend he loved enough to harrow with a call. What was there to say? It was a matter of silences, not words. He tried to read his way into sleep, but only grew more wakeful. He read science and poetry. He liked spare poems cited minutely in white space, ranks of alphabetic strokes burnt into paper. Poems made him conscious of his breathing. A poem bared the moment to things he was not normally prepared to notice. This was the nuance of every poem, at least for him at night, these long weeks, one breath after another in the rotating room at the top of the triplex. He tried to sleep standing up one night in his meditation cell, but wasn't nearly adept enough, monk enough, to manage this. 
He bypassed sleep and rounded into counterpoise, a moonless calm in which every force is balanced by another. This was the briefest of easings, a little pause in the stir of restless identities. When he died, he would not end. The world would end. He stood at the window and watched the great day dawn. The view was across bridges, narrows, and sounds, and out past the burrows and toothpaste suburbs into measures of landmass and sky that could only be called a deep distance. He watched a hundred gulls trail a wobbling scow downriver. They had large, strong hearts. He knew this, disproportionate to body size. He'd been interested once and had mastered the teeming details of bird anatomy. Birds have hollow bones. He mastered the steepest matters in half an afternoon. He didn't know what he wanted, then he knew. He wanted to get a haircut. He stood a while longer, watching a single gull lift and ripple in a furl of air, admiring the bird, thinking into it, trying to know the bird, feeling the sturdy, earnest beat of its scavenger's ravenous heart. He wore a suit and tie. A suit subdued the camber of his overdeveloped chest. He liked to work out at night, pulling weighted metal sleds, doing curls and bench presses in stoic repetitions that ate away the day's tumults and compulsions. He walked through the apartment, 48 rooms. He did this when he felt hesitant and depressed, striding past the lap pool, the card parlor, the gymnasium, past the shark tank and screening room. He stopped at the Borzoi pen and talked to his dogs. Then he went to the annex where there were currencies to track and research reports to examine. The yen rose overnight against expectations. He went back up to the living quarters and paused in every room, absorbing what was there, deeply seeing, retaining every fleck of energy in rays and waves. The art that hung was mainly color field and geometric, large canvases that dominated rooms and placed a prayerful hush on the atrium, skylighted with its high white paintings and trickle fountain. The atrium had the tension and suspense of a towering space that requires pious silence in order to be seen and experienced properly. The mosque of soft footfall and rock doves murmurous in the vaulting. He liked paintings that his guests did not know how to look at. The white paintings were unknowable to many, knife-applied slabs of mucoid color. The work was all the more dangerous for not being new. There's no more danger in the new. He rode to the marble lobby in the elevator that played Satie. His prostate was asymmetrical. He went outside and crossed the avenue, then turned and faced the building where he lived. He felt contiguous with it. It was 89 stories, a prime number, in an undistinguished sheet of hazy bronze glass. They shared an edge or boundary, skyscraper and man. It was 900 feet high, the tallest residential tower in the world, a commonplace oblong whose only statement was its size. It had the kind of banality that reveals itself over time as being truly brutal. He liked it for this reason. He liked to stand and look at it when he felt this way. He felt wary, drowsy, and insubstantial. In the park across the street, 
There were stylized ironwork arbors and bronze fountains with iridescent pennies, scattershot at the bottom. A man in women's clothing walked seven elegant dogs. He put on his sunglasses. Then he walked back across the avenue and approached the line of white limousines. He liked the fact that the cars were indistinguishable from each other. He'd wanted such a car because he thought it was a platonic replica, weightless for all its size, less an object than an idea. But he knew this wasn't true. This was something he said for effect, and he didn't believe it for an instant. He believed it for an instant, but only just. He wanted the car because it was not only oversized, but aggressively and contemptuously so, metastasizingly so a tremendous mutant thing that stood astride every argument against it. In the limo, the car ran into stalled traffic before it reached Second Avenue. He sat in the club chair at the rear of the cabin looking into the array of visual display units. There were medleys of data on every screen, all the flowing symbols and alpine charts, the polychrome numbers pulsing. He absorbed this material in a couple of long, still seconds, ignoring the speech sounds that issued from lacquered heads. There was a microwave and a heart monitor. He looked at the spy cam on a swivel, and it looked back at him. He used to sit here in handheld space, but that was finished now. The context was nearly touchless. He could talk most systems into operation, or wave a hand at a screen and make it go blank. Michael Chin was in the jump seat now, his currency analyst, only a kid, still, with a gutter punk stripe in his hair, a moody beetroot red. Eric said, there's a poem I read in which a rat becomes the unit of currency. Yes, that would be interesting, Chin said. Yes, that would impact the world economy. The name alone, better than the dong or the quatcha. The name says everything. Yes, the rat, Chin said. Yes. The rat clothed lower today against the euro. Yes, there is growing concern that the Russian rat will be devalued. White rats, think about that. Yes, pregnant rats. Yes, major sell-off of pregnant Russian rats. Britain converts to the rat, Chin said. Yes, joins trend to universal currency. Yes, US establishes rat standard. Yes, every US dollar redeemable for rat, dead rats. Yes, stockpiling of dead rats called global health menace. He looked past Chin towards streams of numbers running in opposite directions. He understood how much it meant to him, the roll and flip of data on a screen. He studied the figural diagrams that brought organic patterns into play, bird wing and chambered shell. It was shallow thinking to maintain that numbers and charts for the cold compression of unruly human energies, every sort of yearning and midnight sweat reduced to lucid units in the money market. In fact, data itself was soulful and glowing, a dynamic aspect of the life process. This was the eloquence of alphabets and numeric systems, now fully realized in electronic form, in the zero oneness of the world, the digital imperative that defined every breath of the planet's living billions. Here was the heave of the biosphere. Our bodies and oceans were here, knowable and whole. The undead, 
An image on one of the onboard screens distracted him. It was the president in his limousine, visible from the waist up. This was a feature of the Midwood administration, the chief executive on live video stream, accessible worldwide. Eric studied the man. He watched for 10 motionless minutes. He didn't move, and neither did the president, except reflexively, and neither did the traffic in either location. The president was in shirt sleeves, sitting in a quotidian stupor. He twitched once, blinked a few times. His gaze was empty, without direction or content. There was an air of eternal fly buzz boredom. He did not scratch or yawn and began to resemble a person sitting in an offstage lounge, waiting to do a guest spot on TV. Only it was eerier and deeper than that, because his eyes carried no sign of imminence, of vital occupancy, and because he seemed to exist in some little hollow of non-time, and because he was the president. Eric hated him for that. He'd talked to him several times. He'd waited in the yellow reception room in the West Wing. He'd advised him on matters of some importance and had to stand where someone asked him to stand while someone else took pictures. He hated Midwood for being omnipresent. He hated him for being the object of a credible threat to his safety. And he hated and mocked him for his gynecoid upper body with its swag of dangling mammaries under the sheer white shirt. He looked vengefully at the screen, thinking the image to the president every justice. He was the undead. He lived in a state of occult repose, waiting to be reanimated. Auspiciousness. Then lights came on, dead ahead, flaring with a crack and whoosh, great carbon arc floodlights that were set on tripods and rigged to lampposts. A woman in jeans appeared, flagging down the car. The intersection was soaked in vibrant light, the night abruptly alive. People crisscrossed the streets, calling to each other or speaking into handsets, and teamsters unloaded equipment from long trucks. And it was only now that Eric saw the heavy trolley with movable boom attached, rolling slowly into place. Installed at the high end of the boom was a platform that held a movie camera and a couple of seated men. When he got out of the car, he saw the elements of the scene in preparation. There were 300 naked people sprawled in the street. They filled the intersection, lying in haphazard positions, some bodies draped over others, some leveled, flattened, fetal, with children among them. No one was moving. No one's eyes were open. They were a sight to come upon, a city of stunned flesh, the barrenness, the bright light, so many bodies unprotected and hard to credit in a place of ordinary human transit. Of course, there was a context. Someone was making a movie, but this was just a frame of reference. The bodies were blunt facts, naked in the street. Their power was their own, independent of whatever circumstances attended the event. But it was a curious power, he thought, because there was something shy and wan in the scene, a little withdrawn. A woman coughed with a head jerk and a leap of the knee. He did not wonder whether they were meant to be dead or only senseless. He found them sad and daring both, and more naked than ever in their lives. Technicians weaved through the group with light meters, soft stepping overheads, 
and a woman with a slate stood ready to mark the scene and take. Eric went to the corner and squeezed through a pair of warped boards that blocked the sidewalk. He stood inside the plywood framework, breathing mortar and dust, and removed his clothes. Then he pushed through the boards and stepped into the street. He took 10 baby steps, reaching the border of fallen bodies. He lay down among them. He felt the textural variation of slubs of chewing gum, compressed by decades of traffic. He smelled the ground fumes, the oil leaks and rubbery skids, summers of hot tar. He lay on his back, head twisted, arm bent on chest. His body felt stupid here, a pearly froth of animal fat in some industrial waste. Out of one eye, he could see the camera sweep the scene at a height of 20 feet. The master shot was still being prepared, he thought, while a woman with a handheld camera prowled the area, shooting digital video. A high assistant called to a lesser, Bobby, lock it up. The street grew quiet in time. Voices died, and he felt the presence of the bodies, all of them, the body breath, the heat and running blood, people unlike each other who were now alike, amassed, heaped in a way, alive and dead together. The crane shot commenced, camera slowly lowering, and he shut his eyes. Now that he was sightless among them, he saw the clustered bodies as the camera did, coldly. Another voice called, rolling. It tore his mind apart, trying to see them here and real, independent of the image on a screen in Oslo or Caracas. Or were these places indistinguishable from this one? But why ask these questions? Why see these things that isolated him? They set him apart, and this is not what he wanted. He wanted to be here among them, all body, the tattooed, the hairy ass, those who stank. He wanted to set himself in the middle of the intersection among the old with their raised veins and body blotches and next to the dwarf with the bump on his head. There were the young and strong. He was one of them. He was one of the morbidly obese, the tanned and fit and middle-aged. He thought of the children and the scrupulous beauty of their pretending so formal and fine-boned. He was one. There were those with heads nested in the bodies of others, in breasts or armpits, for whatever sour allowance of shelter. He thought of those who lay face up and wide-winged, open to the sky, genitals, world-centered. There was a dark woman with a small red mark in the middle of her forehead for auspiciousness. Was there a man with a missing limb, brave stump knotted below the knee, how many bodies bearing surgical scars? And who is the girl in dreadlocks, folded into herself, nearly all of her lost in her hair, pink toes showing? He wanted to look around, but did not open his eyes until a long moment passed, and a man's sharp voice called, cut. Thank you very much. And that takes us into the world of Eric Packer. 
Do you believe inside yourself, given the darkness that comes from this novel, that it's possible for us to escape the consequences of his world? Something occurred to me while I was writing this book. Um, there was a period between the end of the Cold War and the beginning of what people are calling the Age of Terror. This was essentially the 1990s. And um, it was a period marked by money. The theme of the decade was money. We are still, in a sense, recovering. To, to, to try to, to respond to your question, still recovering from that odd period of euphoria when people sat looking at their computer screens all day into the night, watching their money develop muscle and bone, when uh, multinational corporations began to seem to have the vitality and significance of, of national governments, when CEOs were global celebrities. And one of the things that stimulated this novel is that something else seemed to be happening, and time seemed to be accelerating. There was something in the confluence of technology and capital that seemed to make time move faster. And then in the spring of the year 2000, it all began to stop. And he can't get from First Avenue to Ninth Avenue in less, in, than, in a less day. than a full day. Um, and in, in the novel, it, it, this collapse of the markets happens much more uh, abruptly than, than it did, in fact, because everything in the novel happens much more abruptly, um, in, in tune with the idea of accelerated time. <clears throat> and of course, his tragedy is. For those of you who haven't yet read the book, this will sound odd, but his tragedy is that he doesn't understand the significance of the asymmetry of his prostate. That's is that right. fair? That's right. I sneaked that little sentence in uh, during the reading that his, his prostate was asymmetrical. Um, do, you know, do you know what it means? I mean, I know we've got a family audience here, but... Um, um, I, I have um, an impersonal idea of what it means. Um, Go on. And, and the idea of, of asymmetry sort of uh, slinks through the novel from that, from that point on. Um, Eric meets another character who, who is a kind of asymmetrical human being in, in certain ways, and, and the novel ends on, a, on their, their moment of confrontation, which I won't say further. Indeed. But what's, what's interesting is that the hope is in the asymmetry. The hope is in the idea that uh, the world that Packard understands in his marble-floored car as he goes along wondering about the yen, stealing his wife's money through his wristwatch in order to lose it all in a moment in some mad game on the screen, um, can be saved by an asymmetrical reading of the world. Now, do you think it can happen? Because it's impossible to read your work without understanding your affection for an America gone. Nobody who's read Underworld can forget the first chapter of the baseball game and so on. Now, Packer ends up, almost literally, in a barber shop. 
this is the America that you knew as a child in New York. It's America which you still have a feeling for, and yet there's an inescapable sense that you believe it is absolutely and irrevocably gone. Do you believe that? Well, much of it is gone. Um, and I, I think what has informed my work comes out of, of a period not too far removed from that earlier period you referred to. I, I really think that <clears throat> my work has been shaped by events of the 1960s, most particularly the assassination of President Kennedy. Um, it occurs to me that later this year, we will be commemorating the 40th anniversary of that moment in Dallas, which is astonishing um, for me to think about. But I, I think what happened is that th this led to a very long period in the United States of suspicion, distrust, paranoia, asymmetry, if you will, um, a sense that, that things were not finally as we'd been brought up to believe they were, that the government was not necessarily to be trusted, that abrupt violence of a cataclysmic kind was not necessarily something that happened elsewhere in Sarajevo in 1914. And um, things did not change for a very long time through the 60s and 70s. This, this in a sense, was an age of, of American paranoia. And I, I think it has eased since then to, to be displaced by other kinds of, of unease. But if you believe that, you must believe that the Reagan period and mourning again and so on in the early 80s was a false interregnum in a process which, as you read Cosmopolis, you can't help feeling you believe still continues inexorably. Um, those, those Reagan years, <clears throat> many Americans would say they were important because he restored a certain sense of self-esteem to the country, which had been faced with assassinations, um, the riots flowing from urban unrest of various kinds in the 60s and 70s, um, a number of assassination attempts that didn't succeed, the entire spectacle of Vietnam, and then followed by Watergate. Something had to change, and what would change it? Well, a movie actor, the, um, the movies. It would become it was a movie. an American movie. response. It would become a movie for a while. And, uh, and it, it's a little hard to, to describe how we got from there to here, except to mention um, the idea of terrorism. You see, what we're, I suppose, talking about here is a question of optimism and pessimism. And as you'll know, there's been a great debate in this country over the last few months, for obvious reasons, about the relationship with the United States, about the, the questions of the transatlantic relationship of our emotional uh, commitment or hostility to various things that are represented by, by the current incumbent. And I can't help asking you the direct question, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the way that all the cultural forces and the politics of your country, which you've written about for so long now, are heading? I tend not to be optimistic or pessimistic. Um, I. I tend to try to understand what's happening more than anything else. I guess, I guess I'm inseparable from the writer I am. That is, I want to know what's going on before I can tell myself this is okay or this is awful. But this is dark. 
I mean, Packer is a dark man. Now he's a, he's a funny man. He's an absurd man to most of us. I mean, I hope most of us would find him an absurd man. Um, and yet the message he sends is dark. And when the poor chap asks him if he understands the significance of the asymmetry of his prostate, of course he doesn't, and that's his tragedy. Well, he's many other tragedies, but that's one of them. Um, and I can't help feeling that you sense that you probably are going to be trapped in the dark. In the dark. Well, I think, I think we're there now. Uh, and and I, I can't help but associate it with, with the events of September 11th. Mm because this has entered our consciousness. Were you in New York when that happened? I was in New York, and, and uh, members of my family were in serious danger for two hours, but um, were, were finally um, rescued. Um, and, um, <clears throat> you know, many people think of Iraq in terms of a continuation of, of what happened then. It's, it's not except from a sort of public relations standpoint. Um, but maybe, maybe something even deeper, maybe psychologically, maybe there was something that had to be done to ease the, um, the, the terrible tension that, that the events of September 11th caused. I can't help thinking that, I always end up thinking about technology in the end. And I can't help thinking that one of the driving forces of, of the American intent toward Iraq is technology. That finally, after September 11 and after Afghanistan, we were able to find an identifiable enemy with well, you borders, found them. that's the problem. But with anyway, borders, well, yes. in theory, <laughs> yeah. with borders, with a uniformed army, and there's something in the nature of technology that demands it to be used. That science is 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 inquiry, and technology is application. There's a force in technology that has to be realized in three dimensions. Whatever becomes theoretically feasible is driven toward realization by, by something in the nature of this, uh, of this force. But if you believe that, as many people do, you've got to believe that at some point it'll be Armageddon. Well, I, I thought I was the only one who believed it. We've <laughs> <laughs> got Hitchens um, here. I mean, I keep hearing, I keep hearing about, about, the, about the geopolitics of the situation and about our, our need um, for a kind of anticipatory self-defense and, and even a, a kind of self-interested altruism in, in um, establishing democracy in certain places. But, but to me, there's that psychic force beneath it all and, and hardly identifiable. What about the psychic force that's engendered by writers? Because it's inescapable, isn't it? That, um, for whatever reason, whether it's because of some of the madnesses as you see them of the 90s, whether it's because of 9-11, uh, whether it's because of other factors around us, um, serious American writers are in a very dark mood. Now, that's not surprising, but they're plunging into, into quite a, uh, what, what seems to be an empty, dark room and trying to feel around to see what they can find. Now, isn't that bound to have quite a profound effect in the way that um, a sense of optimism and discovery in previous periods in writing has had its own effect. Well, 
I, I guess I, I, I'm, not, I'm not terrifically adept at examining American culture or American writing in, in a large-scale way. <clears throat> I'm not sure what I see. Um, what do you feel? I feel that the best young talent is still drawn toward the novel, despite the enormous emphasis in our culture on cinema. Um, and I think there are very good young novelists, American novelists, and I think I have to leave it up to them to tell us how we feel. But what is the great theme now? You know, if you, if you look at um, the American novel in the 19th century and then again in the 20th century, it was always um, the great preoccupation with discovery, with, if you like, the frontier spirit, with um, the reinterpretation of some kind of dream with, with all the rest of it. I mean, in Gatsby, um, beating against the current and being born back into your past and all the rest of it. Is that still the thing well, that I is think going to inform the American novel? I think the American writers, the young writers, will tell us what there is to discover. And it's not an answer to the question. I mean, I'm interesting. Sure, yes. though it is. No, no, I'm sorry. Yes, no. Um, what is there to discover? What, what's on the other side of this period? What's on the other side what, of George W. Bush? What's on the other Bush? side of this period of, of, of anxiety? What's on the other side of George Bush? Uh, the same thing that's on this side. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a pessimistic or an optimistic answer. <laughs> um, I'll elaborate yes. very briefly. Yes. I, I, well, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I sense that the forces that, that drive uh, George Bush are are exterior, that they come from other sources, other influences. See, I don't know what's inside him. I guess that's what I'm saying. Um, you know, there's his, so what his family, his, his family, his minister, his, his many advisors. What else? I don't know. Maybe it's fear. I don't sense it. Um, I see, he wasn't even afraid when he woke up to find that he was not he did not own a small Texas minor league baseball team, that he was the president of the United States. This did not scare him. <laughs> just scared the rest of us. But anyway, that's another exactly. matter. No, I, just, I didn't say that. Um, the charter of the BBC doesn't allow it. Um, anyway, to return to fiction, which is much safer. Um, do the Packers of this world survive, or do they all no, I don't sell their wife's money, see the end go down and get shot. Or I, whatever I, I, I think I think they I think they um, I think there there is no prolonged period of time that will accommodate this sort of of behavior, this sort of character. Um, they they come and they go, and then we forget who they were. You express in this novel a sense of the madness which reaches its apogee here as this marble-floored car moves across uh, with a presidential motorcade coming down causing mayhem one way, the funeral of a star causing mayhem in another way, assassination threats against the occupant of the car even as he's having his daily medical examination. I mean, it's a picture of utter madness. How many people do you think in New York or in the United States share your concept that what we've passed through is a period in which that sort of madness well, has been quite common. It's, it's, a, it's also a period of accelerated time. In, in essence, this man is living his life in one day. And so it's an enormously eventful day. 
exaggerated. It's a Joycean novel in that sense. Uh, but a much shorter day. Than certainly, certainly. <laughs> no argument about that. Um, and, um, and, and, and this is, this is the motivation. And um, what, what is happening here is, is the fact that the future is intruding into the present. And this is the, the, the driving force behind the, the, um, the narrative. This is a man moving into the future. Uh, almost literally before anyone else. And um, what happens when he gets there? Well, uh, read the book. We won't say what happens when he gets there, uh, except he does reach a barber shop at some point. That's safe to say. He's 28. He's a multi-billionaire. Um, he's watching his screens. The yen is doing funny things a long way away. He steals, what, $735 million from his wife in an instant and loses it, as it were, at the gaming table on his screens. Um, this is a truly terrifying vision. It's, it's a vision of self-destruction. At some point in the book, he wills all this to happen, and that's why it happens. There is, in fact, something called an Icarus complex, which is the drive of a, an extremely powerful man to destroy himself. Um, I'm, I'm assuming it happens only to men. Maybe that's incorrect, but so far. This, this, this is how it is spoken of. And, and this is, in, in essence, what happens. To, to use a, a, a Greek reference, a Joycean reference, um, he is an Icarus um, um, rather than a Daedalus. But what do you feel about those who are going to be affected, who know nothing of his existence? but who will feel um, you know, the flap of his wings well, uh, as yes, they melt yes. um, right. out there. Well, this has happened. I mean, it happened uh, at the end of the 90s and, and into the current decade. It happened to many people when individuals and corporations, um, enormous corporations, were shown to be dishonest on one level or another. And it did happen. And people's lives were very badly um, mangled. Well, we're back to the plea for humanity, aren't we? Which is inescapably a, a kind of rumbling theme through the book. Do you see any sign that it's being answered? I don't think it's being answered. Um, and what will happen if that's it isn't? Why we, that's why we write novels, perhaps. I don't mm. know. And what happens if it isn't answered? Write more novels? We're, um, look out at the audience and... Um, you look for hope and say, thank you for being here. And you say, listen and read. Well, I want to bring the aforementioned audience in at this point, actually, because I think we've uh, touched on really some quite powerful themes, and it would be uh, really good to hear. Now, we've got a couple of um, mics roving around. Can I just see a, a hand or two? There's one here, helpfully, right in the middle of the row, um, <laughs> which is, is very thoughtful. Um, send it, can you send it whizzing along? From, well, you're getting two because you're in the middle of the row. Um, and then it, it just throw up your hands and we'll get mics to you in preparation, as it were. One back there, if you could get. Yeah, thanks very much. It should be on. Can I ask you uh, um, how you think the media as a social force and as a series of technologies has changed since you were writing about the airborne toxic event back in the days of white noise? Uh, I wish I could say that it's just catching up to the novel, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm, I can't go that far. Um, I don't know what to say about the media that you don't know. It's, it's, a, it's everywhere, it's around us, and um, 
we live inside it, and um, which, which does not mean we all have to go and, and see Matrix 2 tomorrow. Does it, does it depress you? It doesn't depress me. I look it's at it and, and I, I, it's, I, I want to understand it. I, it does not depress me at all. Have you seen Matrix 2 stroke 3? I, I, no, I saw the first one. Which is enough, is it? Yes, for me. Right, okay, well, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, there's one here and then one behind and then one over there. Yeah, keep them coming, thanks. Uh, thank you, of course, for your writing and your approach to your writing. Um, I am particularly fond of, of your book, The Names, and I have read somewhere, probably in The Guardian, that uh, you spent two years living in Greece uh, as a part of writing this book. I'm wondering how that, and, and probably visited uh, many sites to, to the east of Greece as a, as a part of your work for that. I'm wondering how that affected your view of your work and your view of where you come from. Thanks. I, I, uh, <clears throat> I did spend uh, three years in Greece when I was working on the names. It was a very important period for me because I, I felt that my work um, had become a little tired in a way. I'd been writing too many books too quickly, perhaps. And now, surrounded by another culture, hearing different languages all the time, traveling um, to such places as Egypt and, and Jordan and Jerusalem and, and um, India, was terrifically invigorating for me, and it began to, to revitalize my work. And it, what it did essentially is, make, is it, it made me look again at the world, look more closely and carefully, listen more closely and carefully, and allow the experience of a particular day to enter my work in a much more direct fashion than it had done before. It was, the, I think the names is the beginning of the second half of my life as a writer. And yet with that <coughs> um, new sensibility, and that's what it was, or with some extra dimensions <coughs> added, uh, you returned um, inevitably to your own place, your own material, your own people, and tried to apply them there rather than anywhere else. Yes, because I, I knew if I, if, uh, if I stayed any longer, I would lose touch with American culture, and I did not want to do that. So there was an intermission, as it were. And, and when I came back and, and started eventually working on white noise, I did see a somewhat different America because I'd been away for so long and totally familiar things now seemed uh, interesting to me. One of the things about white noise, and it comes up again in Cosmopolis, is the uh, obsession or the fascination or the love of death. Um, Yes, why? I, um, it's not an easy question to answer. I could say that all art is an attempt to understand dying. Um, but I, I, I do know that when I was working on white noise, I did have a sense of a, a curious kind of impending mortality um, more, more strongly than usual. And when I finished the book, it, uh, it tended to lift. So... Uh, Maybe your prostate had become symmetrical again. There's <laughs> uh, an answer there. Uh, a question there and then another one. Maybe an answer as well. A question there and then... Yes, here, sorry. And then somebody was waggling a hand back there. Yeah. Yes, here first. Um, can I ask 
Can you tell me something about the imagery at the end of Cosmopolis? Um, first, Eric Packer shoots himself in the hand. Then I think he wishes he'd... Be careful how far you go here for people who haven't got... But anyway, yes. Then he wishes that he'd executed his dogs. There's, um, what leaps to mind is obviously a man with a hole in his hand and a man who shot his dogs. Would you like to tell me something about what that was about? Well, I don't, I don't know that, that, that there's a connection. Um, uh, certainly the ending of the book becomes increasingly violent. I think, I think he thinks of, of his dogs accompanying him into death as if he were an Egyptian pharaoh, as if he were a great king of Mesopotamia. And so, you know, his, his pets, his household staff, would all have to die with him. That's, that's what he was thinking of. Why does he shoot himself in the hand? Um, because it would hurt. Um, and he wanted to feel this. And if, he, and if he did it in the head, he'd have nothing else left to say. That's right. There, and then forward here, yeah. And then there, yeah. Hi, um, a little on something of the thing you already touched on and James was touching on as well. I mean, do you feel still, uh, as an author, um, driven by the, uh, the passions of the issues you talk about, about the dysfunctionality of society? I mean, do you feel that you want to keep writing about that to alert people, to make us all aware, to make a better world? Or, um, you know, are you looking for something else? Are you still driven by it? No, no I, don't, I don't write in order to alert anyone. Um, beyond myself. I, I write simply because the, the, the driving need is there. I don't know what I'm going to write next, at, at, uh, and that, that applies to just about every book. I don't know what will strike me. It may be a face in a subway train that gets me into the next novel. And what happens after a, a book begins is what comes out of my my unconscious, essentially, what comes out of my being. I don't plan to write about specific is issues. Um, only a character in a room, a face um, in a room. This is how it starts. And I must see people. There's a, there's a very strong pictorial element, I think, in my work. I don't like to describe extended psychological states. I like people. Uh, in three dimensions, um, in action, as it were. <clears throat> Excuse me. But Cosmopolis is a very compressed book. It's an extraordinarily uh, vivid, uh, richly painted, but tight book. Whereas Underworld is a very long book, and you were you were dealing with decades of the American experience. You then wrote a very short book, which was a reworking of the first chapter of Underworld. I mean, we're back to the baseball game again. And oh, oh the, yes. The, well, no, no, no. It, it was the first chapter. It was. The it was first just. Chapter. It was it just was reprinted. Just, it was just. It didn't change, did it? Not. Not from the. the novel. It didn't. Not from the not, novel. Not from no, the no, novel. No, 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 no. Well, this one is very short. It's very. Um, it's very spare in many ways. Now, is that something which you think will stay with you as a style, as a, as a desire, as a writer, I, or will you go back to something? I've been asking myself that question, I, and I don't know the answer yet. Uh, I did make an intentional attempt in Cosmopolis to write a more compressed sentence. In Underworld, I'd, I'd opened up the sentence. Here, I, for, for reasons that have as much to do with self-discipline as anything else, I, I decided to work on a, a different kind of prose. 
you say to open up the sentence, but the prose here is still, it still has that staccato um, rhythm, which is also true in Underworld, although the book is much longer and the themes are teased out over many pages. The exchanges on the street or wherever they are have that kind of crisp quality that's, I, that's you. Th this is what I hear in my head, yes, rhythm. The rhythm of even of, a, of the spoken sentence. When you say you hear it in your head, does that... When you get an idea, do you start to hear a dialogue inside your head? Is that how you create it? It's, it's more difficult to describe than that. Um, uh, first, I feel something, and then I have to get, you know, Hemingway said, get black on white. I have to get words on paper. And that's where the rhythm begins in, in the language as it, as it is transferred from my mind to through my hands on, onto an old typewriter. And of course, one of the wonderful themes of this book really is the absurd language. And then the, I mean, there's a wonderful paragraph that I love here about when, when things are getting tough. Um, uh, the driver says, we have fixed condition, we have flood conditions in the street ahead, state of chaos, this, the question of the president and his whereabouts, he is fluid. It's one of your favorite words, fluid, isn't it? That he is fluid, he's moving, and wherever he goes, our satellite uh, receiver reports a ripple effect in the traffic that causes mass paralysis. This also, there is a funeral proceeding slowly downtown and now deflecting westwards. Wonderful idea for funeral deflecting itself. Many vehicles, uh, numerous mourners on foot. And finally this, we have a report of, and this is the climactic word in the whole paragraph, we have an imminent report, a report of imminent activity in the area. And then Eric says, activity. He doesn't ask a question, he just says, activity, imminent, nature as yet unknown, the complex says, use caution. Well, I mean, you can't get spared other than that. I mean, it's, I mean, you're, you're debunking the language of our time, aren't you? Well, the language of, the language of um, officialdom, in a way, <coughs> this, this conversa conversation is, <coughs> is taking place between Eric and his chief of security who is um, uh, a, a sort of a man of, of, of a certain intelligence who is always very willing to use force. Um, and there, there's something sort of institutional about the way he speaks. It's almost hammered out of a computer. And it's very familiar to all of us, unfortunately, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, um, and there, and there is imminent activity, which turns out to be a violent uh, demonstration, uh, an anti-globalist demonstration. Who's got the microphone? Who's got it? Right, okay. Fire away, and then over here. I'm just wondering why, um, why baseball is so special to you. I, I grew up um, not far from Yankee Stadium, and I grew up in a culture where you, you had to be a baseball fan, um, or you were put on an ice flow. And, and set adrift. And, the, and the, it has to be said that the removal of the Brooklyn Dodgers from New York is one of the great cultural events of the 20th century. Well, um, to many people, to, to those who were Brooklyn Dodger fans, I wasn't. No, this, you were this Yankees was, fan yes, This was a, a cataclysm. And they still have stones from the, the field. This when was it went a cataclysm beyond, beyond um, repair. We could be here all afternoon. That was a dangerous question. <laughs> Who's got the microphone now? Where's it heading? It's heading in there. That hand's been jumping up a lot. And then there's a couple to the back there. Yes, carry on. I'm a big fan of Underworld. Um, but I was slightly confused by the ending. I wanted to ask you, did you see the internet as a 
as a unifying force? Do you think it was a good thing or a bad thing? The, the internet. Well, I, I don't think of it as a good thing or a bad thing. I, I, I think it's an enormously important thing that changes the way we think, changes the way we feel, and changes the way we live. You mean it's like the weather? Well, um, except you don't have to go outdoors to feel it. Um, it's, it's, uh, it follows you, in a sense, and um, um, we're back to make the matrix again. Um, and I, you know, I really don't have an opinion about the internet, ex except that I find it enormously absorbing. It surprises me, and maybe some people here, that you don't find, find it threatening, because no, most people, no. surely, paradoxically, I mean, enjoy it and understand what it can give to them, but at the same time are rather, rather scared of it. Well, uh, well it may be threatening in, in the way it changes the way we, we think about ma matters. Um, I mean, it, it makes us feel that we need to have certain things that we may not necessarily ha need to have. I mean, we, we, we need email because we have it, not because it's necessary. I mean, for many of you, it, it, it has become necessary in your job. You have to have it. But the day before you had it, was it necessary? No, when, when you have it, it becomes necessary. This is one of the aspects of, of technology, of contemporary technology. Right, carry on. You gave us one of the best explanations that I have heard as to the rationale, uh, of President Bush rationale for declaring war on Iraq. Do you have any views at all on our prime minister's rationale for joining him. Oh. <laughs> the next person who has a question will answer that question. Right. Okay, now who was very anxious to ask a question? Somebody, they've all gone quiet. Not getting an answer from me, I'll tell you that much. Right, yes. Who's, right, now you've got to answer that question. I think you're an American citizen, uh, aren't you? Absolutely not. Oh, sorry, no, you're not. I thought you were someone else. Right, okay, you're passing on the Blair test. Yeah, I am. Um, sorry, very selfishly, I just want to ask a question about where the... When we were hearing the passage you just read out, um, it felt like the consciousness, the creating force, which was providing and weaving this world for us, at first came from the protagonist, from Eric, and then it sort of drifts away from him when he's lying down naked on the street. First we're in his consciousness, and then almost like a camera, but not completely as visual as that. It sort of rises above him. And constantly, I find in your books, you know, in Underworld, the consciousness seems to pass with a baseball at the beginning, and then it just passes. It's so free and liberal and almost godlike in its creative force. Where, what's on your mind there? I mean, how, how does that work? It, it, it's... Um, it's, it's what I am as a writer, and it, it happens, it just happens. You know, it's, it's odd. As difficult as my first novel was for me to write, <clears throat> it, took, it took me four years, and I was having a, a tough time, but there was something ab about the process itself that made me believe that I could be a writer, and, and that made me feel I did not have to shrink from important subjects. And eventually, probably with Underworld, the, the style um, reached its, its full self-realization. And I showed no hesitation about moving um, the book from culture to culture, city to city, mind to mind, 
uh, over, over a period of 800 pages. Um, uh, uh, beyond that, um, I don't know what else to say except um, this is how I write, this is how I think. I have an answer to the Blair question. The Blair question. I'm, I'm not telling. No, I have a question about, uh, to, uh, to return to uh, condensed novels and language, I have a question about um, the body artist. And uh, I'm curious about what was the inspiration for that book, both stylistically and in terms of the subject matter. Um, the body artist is the book that appeared be between Underworld and this one. And the inspiration was um, a moment on, on a subway. I was riding a subway, and I thought of an idea. The idea was um, a man living in someone else's house, the residents of the house not knowing he was there. And this is how it all started. I don't know what else to say. Uh, you know, I sat down and started, and started writing. And it eventually became a novel about, um, about human grief, time, and language. All of these things happen after that curious sort of semi-visual moment as I, as I was uh, sitting on a train under 14th Street in New York. Do you still ride the subway? Oh, yes, all the time. It's, so just it, no, well, no, I mean, it's very it, efficient. As we know, it takes a long time to get up across town if you're in a stretch limo, but... Uh, no, the, the subway, yeah. is, the service has improved in, in New York over decades. But do you, uh, I mean, do you, you feel the ride, need to contact? You can ride and live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can ride and live. It, it seems quite a nice way to draw proceedings to a close. Um, we've had a wonderfully absorbing hour um, listening to the authentic voice of the book itself um, and listening to some fascinating thoughts on the writer's art, the characters and what lies in the past and what lies ahead um, on behalf of all of you, reminding you that uh, Don DeLillo will be in the book tent in a moment uh, to sign copies of his book. Can I, on your behalf, thank him very warmly indeed. Thank you.